You don't have to read the Bible very long to be amazed by the prayers of Jesus. They're often everything that our prayers aren't. Incredibly short, very direct, enormously powerful, always successful. To a dead man who'd been dead four days, Jesus says, come out, and he did. He went into Jairus' house after his daughter had died, said to her, get up, and she got up as well. He said, the blind eyes be opened, and they were, to legs that didn't work, walk, and they did. Simple, profound, powerful prayers that saw great results. And it strikes me that if we're to be followers of Jesus, there seems to be little room for the praying that we're more familiar with, indecisive, tentative, half-hoping, if it be your will, get out clause type praying. You know what I mean. It's no wonder that the disciples were totally wowed by Jesus' prayer life. And that above all else, they said, looking at him, watching the way he lived, you've got to teach us to pray. We need to be like you. Teach us. What Jesus said next, in answer to those disciples' question, is the most astonishing, remarkable thing ever, and the secret to praying like Jesus. He begins, in answer to their question, Lord, teach us to pray, by telling them, firstly, how they should address God. What should they call him? How should they approach him? How are they to understand this relationship that they are building with him? Now, Jesus had been brought up on the Old Testament. He was a good Jewish boy, and as all the Jewish boys and girls of that culture and time, they were immersed in the teachings of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are about a dozen or so very well-known, well-rehearsed names for God. And you can almost hear the disciples thinking to themselves, well, which one is he going to choose? Which of the names of God that we are familiar with is he going to choose when he teaches us to pray? Will it be Jehovah Jireh? Jehovah meaning Lord, Jireh to provide. Will it mean that we pray Jehovah Jireh? We pray to the God who provides. In fact, what a great name as you come to pray. To the God who supplies every need. To the God who can provide in every way. Is Jesus going to say, pray Jehovah Jireh? Or would it be Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals? Or Jehovah Nissi, the God who is my banner, my salvation, my, my, my leader, my triumph? Or what about Jehovah Ra, the God who leads and directs me like a shepherd? Or Jehovah Shalom, God who is our peace? Which one will he choose? Which one does Jesus find the most helpful as he comes to God to unlock his prayer life? Or maybe Jesus will choose some of the other great names that emphasize God's almighty, supreme transcendence. For example, El Shaddai, the all-sufficient Lord. Or El Roy, the God who transcends all things, who sees all things and understands and knows all things. Or El Elohim, the supreme and glorious creator God. Which one will he choose? Which one do we use as we come to prayer? Great names, aren't they, to start your prayers with? That help fill our gaze and our vision of the kind of God that we are coming to as we pray. The astonishing thing is this, that even though every one of those names was perfectly and utterly true about God, Jesus sweeps them all aside. In one word, he will sweep aside all the Old Testament names for God and bring them back in something greater, bigger, and more remarkable still. For Jesus, none of them alone 
or all of them together were enough. As my dad would say, all of them entirely true, but none of them the entire truth. They didn't capture the heart, the essence of prayer for Jesus. The astonishing revelation that Jesus was about to offer the disciples would in the end get him killed. The religious leaders would get so hacked off that he would talk like that that they, in good time, would nail him to uh, a cross. Jesus said, when you pray, Father, Father, come to this all-supreme, all-sufficient, all-surpassing God and call him Father. In fact, the word Jesus actually uses is Abba. Translate Abba into our vernacular, into our ordinary everyday language, and it would be Dad. Father would be too stuffy, too prim and proper. Oh, Father. It would be Dad. These disciples would have been absolutely speechless, as would have indeed every faithful Jew who even hesitated to speak the divine name. You don't even speak it or write it down. For Jewish boys and girls, they would learn Abba and Imma, Daddy and Mummy, the first words that, that they learned to speak. Abba, so personal, so familiar, it was utterly unheard of for those words to be used in any way, shape or form to reference God. They were too personal, too familiar, too family. Joachim Jeremiah writing, he says, there's not a single example of the use of Abba as an address to God in the whole of Jewish literature. Yet Jesus prays, Abba, Father, Dad. Notice, of course, that Jesus is not saying that, well, actually... You've got it wrong about God. He's not quite as big as you think, so it's okay to call him Father. As if Jesus somehow was bringing God down to our level. Yes, you have thought that God is this utterly supreme, all-transcendent being, but actually he's not quite as big as that. Um, uh, And you can, therefore, because he's not quite all that we said he was, call him Father. No, not at all. Jesus is making clear that this God that you can now call Father, is indeed Jehovah Jireh, the one who will provide. Is indeed El Shaddai, El Ro, El El Elohim, and all of the rest. Our Father in heaven. Literally, our Father who fills, who is bigger than, who is before, greater than the heavens. Jesus is not in any way reducing any understanding of God, but bringing all of those things that are true about God, bringing them to this new spacious place, and saying, this God who is all of this incredible stuff, you call him Father. Father in heaven. And don't miss the first word, which is the most shocking bit. You haven't missed it, I hope. Our Father. What does that mean? What does that mean... Our Father. What does it mean when the Son of God, the only person who has every right to call God Father, says to you and me, say, Our Father. You see, in human terms, I can't say to you, Our Father, because we haven't got the same fathers. At least I hope not. That'll be a shock for you and for me, and we'll need to do some sorting out together. But I can say to my brother and my sister, our father, or more naturally, our dad. Because we're brothers and sisters, because we have the same father, we're in the same family. So get this, when Jesus, God's one and only son, the only one who by rights can call God father, says, I've got a brilliant idea, let's call him our father. Welcome to the family. 
It is the invitation to prayer that I talked about last week, about uh, uh, God welcoming us into the very heart of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, let's do it this way. Let's pray our Father. I'll be your brother. We'll have the same dad. You can know God as Father like I know God as Father. We can be in this together. Our Father. The great invitation. The secret of Jesus is short, powerful, and effective prayers. Is that they came out of a whole life of deep communion with God as Father. Jesus did not start praying when he got outside Lazarus's tomb. Jesus did not start praying when he got into Jairus' house. Jesus did not start praying when he saw a blind man come or a leper or whatever it might be. In fact, Jesus made no secret of the fact that he was always praying. He was always in relationship, always in communion with his Father. So much so that he would say, look, it's dead simple. I don't actually do anything myself. All I do is say what the Father says and do what the Father does. Those are the only two things I do. And he would say over and over again, I I am in the Father so much so that if you see me, you've seen the Father. I just do what the Father does and I say what the Father says. My words and my works belong to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. And one of the first and foremost things that strike you about reading the Gospels for the first time, was the deep and intimate relationship, closeness with God, that he has every day. It's there on every page. And he experienced it for himself, and he taught it for his disciples. And there are loads of examples. But I want us this morning just to zoom in for a few minutes on one of those uh, incredible examples. Grab a Bible in the pew and look at it with me. At page 1030, it's Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, page 1030 in the Bibles that are just sort of floating around. So we could have, we could have chosen tens of examples of the way we see how closely Jesus is doing everything in relationship with his Father. Jesus' baptism. So this is the event that starts, and this is why I've chosen it, it's the event that starts Jesus' public ministry. So it kind of sets the tone, sets the context for what's about to happen in the three years of ministry that Jesus had on earth. When all the people, so this is uh, chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. Have you ever, as a dad, been so excited about one of your kids that you've burst out of all the cultural norms? No. Okay. Well, God in heaven gets so excited. Good, good. There are some mad fathers that do that on the touchline and stuff. You should come to Portman Road sometime. So, there's this moment. Big, 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 big moment for God. Anticipated Jesus is coming since eternity. Big moment. Jesus is about to burst on the, on the world stage, if you like. Big moment, okay? Jesus starts by submitting to the line of sinners. His identification with us to the full to be baptized. The Father is so excited. He's so thrilled because down there is my boy and I love him and I can't sit on this throne in heaven any longer. And he leaps off his throne and he rips open literally the heavens. 
And what does he do? He shouts from the heavens so that everyone can hear, that's my boy. This is my son whom I love. This boy that's marked by my love. He's one of me. He's mine and I love him. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. What is that? First of all, it's a declaration that whatever else is about to happen, it's not a story about Jesus. Don't read the Gospels and think it's a story about Jesus, because it's not. It's a story about a father and a son. A father in heaven and a son on earth. It's a story about their relationship, their togetherness, their working out salvation for us. And there it is. This is a story about a father and a son. It's so important that all four Gospels include this story. But Luke, because he's a doctor, adds something else. Luke, because he's a doctor, maybe, adds in bodily form. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Why does Luke say that? The others don't bother. What's Luke trying to tell us? What's the point of of saying it was bodily, it was physical? Well, that is the point. The Holy Spirit came down in a physical touch, a real, tangible touch from the Father that the Holy Spirit brought. Bring these two things together and you see what happened to Jesus there right at the beginning of his ministry that was so foundational, so important, so the way it was always to be. He heard the Father's voice and he felt the Father's touch. Some have described it as the hug of heaven. He heard the Father's voice and he felt the Father's touch. Wow. The desperate need of human beings. Greater than our socio-economic need, greater than our educational need, greater than any physical sustainability need is the need to know God as... Hello? Father. Father. We need more than anything else. You're on about man does not live on bread alone. Man, the video on the website and stuff. Man, this is it. We don't need bread, but we need this. If we're to be the people God wants us to be, we need to hear the Father's voice. We need to feel the Father's touch. You see, humanly, life is hard without a father. Single mums, you know how hard it is without a father, maybe, for your children. Every day, a struggle. It wasn't meant to be like this. This is hard. It's harder than I imagine. I have to say, single mums around this church are a total inspiration. The love, the grace and the courage, the commitment to live right and be right, the self, sacrifice every moment. They carry every moment more than most of us, more than I could stand in ten minutes. Total respect to single mums. And someone could have said, yeah, or someone could have applauded or said, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, whoever that was, absolutely. How much more We know the struggle without a father. We know the struggle, some of us, painfully growing up without a father on on earth. And we know statistically that that, that more negative things come without a father. We know that's hard. We know there are are bigger obstacles to climb without without a father. And when a tiny premature baby was placed in an incubator, barely able to survive... The father, some loser, had cleared off and left the mum with this premature baby. And the grandfather was distraught and said to the nurse, what on earth can I do? The nurse was absolutely right when she said to that grandfather, come every single day and touch that baby and speak to him of your love. 
Because we need it. Because we need it. If life doesn't work right without human fathers, how much more does it fail catastrophically when we live unaware of our heavenly Father? Listen, if you've ever wondered what's wrong, hey, if your head hits the pillow at the end of the day and you go, in my life, it's just not right. Deep inside, I said, it's just not how I know it should be. It's because you're made to have and to know a Father in heaven. And without Him, it's wrong. Without Him, you're lost. Without Him, the Bible says you're an orphan when really you should be one of the family. It's also the case that many Christians, many Christians who know in their heads that God is their Father, live in effect as orphans. Now it's one thing not to have a father, but to have a father, a heavenly father, a true father, and still live like an orphan, seems to me to be a double catastrophe. But many Christians live as orphans. I was really challenged recently by a very simple handout that came from Shiloh Place Ministries, a prayer ministry set up in, in America. And the work that they've done, really challenged. It's a very simple handout that sets out for different aspects of our lives the different reactions that we choose depending on whether we're reacting out of a, of a heart, an orphan heart, or whether we're reacting out of a heart of sonship, a heart of knowing the Father's heart. It was alarming how many reactions so common among us were examples of our orphan spirit, our our living out of this distance from God instead of this intimacy for which we were made. I have two challenges for you this week and uh, uh, this is the first. If you go to my blog and uh, if if that makes your heart sink, you go to the church office, they'll be able to give you uh, the same. If you go to my blog, there is that handout. Spend half an hour this week in prayer open to the Father, thinking about your reactions and what it says about your closeness to the Father's heart. Are you living out of the Father or are you living out of an orphan heart, an orphan spirit? Be prepared for a bit of a shock, at least for me anyway. On the face of it, it seems weird, isn't it? If we know God is our Father, why would we still live in any way, shape or form as an orphan? Why live as an orphan if we've got this heavenly Father? Well, maybe for the same reason you're glad, many of you, maybe that there's distance between you and your earthly Father of some kind or another. Our most immediate experience of fatherhood is through our human fathers. For a few, that will be a great blessing. For the majority, it will be a mixed blessing. For a few, in fact, more than we care to imagine, it will have been a horrible burden. Having been introduced to our earthly fathers, it's easy to judge God's fatherhood in the light of what we've already begun to experience. So if your father was stern, it's hard to imagine that God would be kind. You learned to keep your distance from your earthly father because you did not want his sternness, so you do the same with God. If your father was pathetically passive, you kind of think, well, why on earth would God, who's in heaven and got the whole world to worry about, care about me? want to be engaged in my life, be aware of my detail, be present in my circumstances. 
If your father was quick to point out what you did wrong, why would you go to him? Because you're afraid that he'll tell you what you already know and no longer celebrate what's good about you. It's hard to believe God who wants to celebrate you as a person. But still be real about the wrong. If all your father ever did was tell you where you were wrong. Some of you think living with God is like that. It's like driving with a police car following you. Does that make you nervous? It should. I've seen some of you drive. You're driving along. You're looking at him. What does he want? Is he following me? Hands up if you think like that. Is he following me? Yeah, fibbers. Ah, he's, he's following me. I'm going to turn down this side street just to see. He's following me. Okay, don't cross the white line. Not into the yellow box. Mirror, signal, position, speed, speed, ah, 32, ah, slow down, slow down, don't make it obvious, don't brake too hard, hope my brake lights are working. You're exhausted, you're, I've only got out of my clothes, so I'm exhausted. I'm on tenderhooks all the time, we think God's like that, many of us instinctively in our hearts think God's like that, we're brought up in a generation where our fathers behave like that. And we see fatherhood, so you read a verse, come near to God and he'll draw near to you, and you go, no thanks. Why would I want to do that? There's a great relief when the police car turns off a different way. You're so afraid that the whole weight of the law will come down on you faster than he can say, PC plod. Why would I go near to God if he's like that? If your father was absent, it's hard to believe that God could be close. If your father never embraced you, hugged you, held you close, said that he loved you, it's almost impossible to believe that a God in heaven would. Fathers, think about that with your children. What messages do you convey? It's really hard. Young man was getting ready, ready to graduate from college. For months, he'd admired a beautiful sports car in a dealer's showroom, and knowing that his father was wealthy and could easily provide him this car, made it very well known that he would like this car in recognition of his graduation. As graduation day approached, the young man looked for signs that his father had bought the car but couldn't find any. Finally, on the morning of the graduation, his father called him into his private study. His father told him how proud he was of him. His father told him that he loved him. His father told him how well he'd done. And then he handed him a beautifully wrapped gift box. Curious, but somewhat disappointed, the man, the young man, began to open the box and found inside a lovely leather-bound Bible embossed with his name in gold. Suddenly, anger rose within him, and angrily, he raised his voice to his father and said, why, when you've got all this money, did you buy me this stupid Bible? And he slammed it down on the floor, and he left. In a fit of pique, that sometimes happens, and then many years pass. Many years passed. The young man was successful in business. Beautiful house and a lovely family. He'd not seen his father since his graduation day. His father was now very old and his son thought that he ought to go back and see his father. Before he could make plans to go and see his father, he learned that his father had died. And then the letter came. The letter came. All the possessions of his father had been willed to this son. Will he come home and sort out the family business? He arrives at the father's house and sadness and regret fills his heart. He began to search through his father's important papers. And there, would you believe it, still new, still as he'd left it, was the Bible. He opened it up with tears streaming down his face. His father had carefully underlined a verse in the Bible, Matthew 7, 11. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give to those who ask him? 
And as he read those words, a khaki dropped from the back of the Bible with the dealer's tag, the dealer's name for the sports car he had desired. On the tag was the date of his graduation and the words paid in full. Like that young man, many of us have judged the father heart of God because of the way our human fathers have responded to us. And we've judged him wrong. The truth, though, about fatherhood is strangely still in us, isn't it? Instinctively, it's in us because we're made in his image. If your father was abusive and vile, the depths of your being cried out, this is wrong, this is not right. Fathers should not do this. The image of God was in you even then. This should not be, this is not right. If your father was everything they should have been and your heart skipped, you rejoiced in glimpses of the fatherhood of heaven because you had moments with a father who was everything a father should be. God is the Father we've been looking for all our lives. But if we are not sure, even as Christians, we'll choose to live as orphans, live with the distance, not get too close, be too uncertain to draw near. And my experience is that many of us live like that for a large portion of our lives. If we're ever going to pray like Jesus... We have to be the Father like He was. The key that will unlock the life of prayer is to discover that God is our Father. That if we've come to Christ, the biggest thing that's happened is that we've joined the family. Becoming a Christian does all kinds of things. We get forgiven for our sin. We get a purpose to live for. We get a a ticket to heaven. Now let's not reduce any of those things. You know, we want them all, don't we? But there is something that that gathers all of those up and puts it into a bigger context. The most remarkable thing is the completeness of what this is all about. The big idea of Christianity is that we have been adopted into his family. Now, adoption is a fantastic thing. I fully understand that if you've been adopted that you may well struggle with that in many different ways. The struggle for you is not towards, most of the time, those who adopted you, but rather the rejection that you may feel from your natural parents. The adoption itself was a great thing because somebody chose you. When my parents had me, all they knew was a baby was coming and this is what they got. They didn't choose anything. It was just me, it was me or nothing. I was the only one that came at that point. It wasn't a choice. They decided to have a baby. But in that sense, they didn't decide to choose me. You say, well, in adoption, someone is specifically chosen. Now, you might say, well, that's true. But when when a parent chooses a a child to adopt, the, the child is still often very young. There's not much information. They're not quite sure what kind of person that child will become. So the element of choice is reduced somewhat. That might be so. But God, knowing everything about you, chose to adopt you into his family. Woo! Yeah, woo! Everything. Knowing everything about me, he chose that I could be in his family. I said this before, if you knew everything about me, you'd reject me. If you knew everything there was to, uh, to know about me, you wouldn't let me be your minister. And I'm cool about that, because if I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't let you join. 
But God knows everything about all of us. And He says, I, I choose you. Into the family. Our Father. Come into the family. I choose you. God knows everything and still chooses. And maybe you've come back to God, you're a Christian. But like the story that Jesus told of the son who'd squandered all his father's inheritance on riotous living and ended up in the pig trough, he made a right mess of things, he's making his way home. Maybe you're coming back, you've come back, you're making your way home just like the son did. He knew he couldn't be a son anymore. He'd made such a hash of it. The best he could hope for was to be a servant, probably just a slave. So he begins to rehearse his speech as he makes his way home. Picture him with me, making his way home. He knows he's messed up. He, he knows overwhelmingly. He's feeding himself from the pigs, the most unclean animal from Jews. I mean, he's rock bottom. He's totally, he's totally trashed out. All his fault. No excuses. Everyone said he shouldn't have done it, but he didn't listen. He, he was wild, selfish, full of his own ends. And he makes his way home. Uh, and he's rehearsing his speech as he walks down. Father, I've sinned. I, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be your child. I, 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 I know sonship. No, 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 I know. But I, could, could I be a servant? You know, maybe I could sleep in the barn. Just, just anything to be close, uh, closer to, to what I used to know. I, 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 I have no rights here. And he turns the last bend. Believing that he has lost all rights of being a son. And so convinced are we on times that we've lost all rights of being a son that we never see him run to us. And we never feel Father Heart fling his arms around us and hold us tight. We never hear him call, quick, get the best robe, kill that fatted calf. I knew he was there for a reason. Get some shoes, a ring, we're going to party. You never feel the warmth of that embrace. Because in your heart you go, I can't be a son anymore. And I'm not sure what the Father will say anyway, so I'll just stay here. When we come home to God, what matters is not that we are a failure, but that He is our Father. Isn't that brilliant? No, it's not about our failure, but it's about that He is our Father. The Son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is now found. And God says that about me. God says he knows everything about me. He knows the pigsties from which I've come, from which I could dabble in so easily. Whatever it might be for you or for me, we're all the same. And he goes, goes, I'm thrilled. You were lost, but now you're alive. But sometimes we just don't feel it. We never hear it. We never see it. Because we've painted this picture of what we're like and what God's like. And so we keep God there and we stay here. And we pray, maybe every day, our Father in heaven. But it's almost like we have to shout because our Father's a long way away. Our Father in heaven. The big idea of Christianity is that we've joined the family. Jim Packer, uh, a famous uh, theologian, professor. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well. This is the big idea. Father. Our Father. We need to discover. Secondly and finally, we need to discover the unlocking of prayer is discovering that God is our true Father. Our true Father. Second challenge is this. I've put another link on my blog uh, this morning. 
Uh, and I want you, uh, as much as you can this week, I'd encourage you to do it every day this week. And then maybe keep doing it once a week or every few days. 50 verses, more than 50 verses, that paint a picture of what our true Father is like. My encouragement to you is to read them every day, allowing them to challenge and to inform what you believe about the Father in heaven. Again, get it from the office if you can't access it online. To live like Jesus, to follow Jesus, to pray like Jesus, is to know God as Father. To know what it is to be his son, his child. And to live every moment out of the Father's heart. You see, when Jesus said, pray our Father, he was inviting us, that's you, that's me, to know what he knows. He was inviting us to experience what he experienced. He was inviting us into family, the Father heart of God. And as we saw at his baptism, his whole life was built on hearing the Father's voice and feeling the Father's touch. Richard Foster, some of you will have read, we are invited into the same intimacy with Father God that Jesus knew while here in the flesh. We're encouraged to crawl into the Father's lap and receive his love and comfort and healing and strength. We can laugh and we can weep freely and openly. We can be hugged and find comfort in his arms and we can worship deep within our spirit. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Well, if that's what it means, I'd like that. No, I need that. Let's pray.